Good morning. Welcome to all of you guys. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to the people on, uh, watching on the live stream as well. I'm happy that you're with us. Uh, let me go over a few quick announcements and then we'll um, get into worship here. So youth confirmation after, um, uh, after Bible study today, that's over at 1245. And uh, parents, you can pick the kids up uh, downstairs at the back door uh, for that new members class tonight from 6 to 730. Uh, whoever wants to come, again, whoever wants to come is more than welcome to come and hang out with us. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, what that means and uh, uh, how that happened and what that's resulted in. So a uh, kind of a sad topic, but uh, an important topic. Uh, sh uh, show up tonight for that. Um, uh, men's Bible study uh, this morning at Wednesday, uh, th this morning, this morning, Wednesday morning, I mean, if you did not get, so we were going to meet this Wednesday and I was going to pass out the new study guides, uh, but we didn't because of the weather. If you did not have, some of you have got one of the new study guides. It's about uh, knowing God, um, and J.I. Packer's done it. Please get that from me now, because we're going to, or not now, but during the, after the service today, because we're going to talk about uh, that on Wednesday morning. So before you leave today, grab a copy of that from me. Um, and then again, I'm just going to repeat this from last week. Uh, we're having space issues in the bulletin. It's been that way for a while. You're cramming stuff in there. And what we finally decided to do was uh, just take the announcements out and make a bunch of them, put more announcements than we did have before on a, a half sheet and set that out in the back. And so grab that. It's going to have all the announcements. I'll try to go over the schedule for the week uh, in the morning before uh, church, but then all the announcements will be uh, back there. So grab that on your way out. Also, QR codes for those of you who do the attendance and giving online. Those will now be not in the bulletin, but on the guest registers. So when you take that guest register and you sign it and you pass it down, uh, look for the QR code on there to use for giving and attendance, if that's the way that you take attendance. And, and remember to do that now to, um, to pass those down there. Okay, one more thing and then we'll jump into worship. Um, I, I, this is going to make some of you unhappy, and I'll just have to apologize and promise you it's temporary. Um, I... I I decided to take the music out for the, uh, what we call the ordinary, the, uh, the parts of the liturgy that are sung that stay the same all year round, you know, like the Gloria and the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. And I know that everybody likes to sing those. Um, and this is totally my fault. I know, I, I, please forgive me. Uh, for the sake of time, while the Revelation series is lasting, I changed those to spoken because you can say them faster than you can sing them. And so from now until we finish the Revelation series, we'll speak them, and then I promise we'll go back to saying them as soon as that's over. I know it's my fault because the sermons are long, and just biting off huge chunks of text and try to race them as fast as possible, and the services are, are drifting longer and longer. And so that will help us uh, stay, be, be a little bit more timely. Okay, so please forgive me for that. All right, uh, that's all I have. Let me pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a great God, and thank you for loving us, and thank you for calling us all together here this morning, and for calling those who are uh, watching on the live stream or, you know, watching uh, a little bit of time from now on YouTube, this, this uh, service. Thank you for calling us together and calling us by your name, and thanks for the promise to take away our shame and our guilt and all the things that we've used to define ourselves throughout this week, which have let us down for, for bringing us in here in convincing us one more time through your word and through your sacrament by the power of the Holy Spirit.
that we are fundamentally your children and that nothing can change that and that your love for us can never be undone and can never be gotten rid of. Help us to live for the next few minutes, Father. Help us to bask in that and to live in the light of your love for us. And then fuel us up to go throughout the week living in the light of that love all week long. Be with us now as we gather around your good gifts. Uh, We don't come here, Father, to give you anything. We come here to receive your grace from you, knowing that that's what brings you glory and brings us pleasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone.
continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us then confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. In the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for us, and for his sake God forgives us all our sins. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the power to become the children of God and bestows upon us the Holy Spirit. And may the Lord who's begun this good work in us bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, to all who call upon you. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to people of goodwill. We praise you. We bless you. We worship you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory, O Lord God, King of heaven, Father Almighty, Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer and have mercy on us, for you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord. You alone, Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, are most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is uh, from Micah chapter 6. Uh, uh, the Lord calls the people of Israel at the beginning of, uh, of our reading to plead their case before the mountains. This is a handful of times in the Old Testament where God calls as a witness creation. Uh, uh, it's, 
it's steadfast, it's there, it's been there since he created it. Uh, it's, he's promised that it will exist forever, that he'll repair it someday. And so sometimes instead of calling another person, or even himself, he'll call creation to, to witness. Um, and that's what happens here, Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, 5, and I think this is the longest reading we'll do um, in the Revelation series. It's the seven seals. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5. Glory to you, O Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus is risen and we shall arise. 
Open in your Bibles to Revelation um, 6 or look in your bulletin at the Revelation reading. Let's talk as quickly as, as I can um, about the seven seals. Um, if I can, give me a second here just to reset this from the past few weeks. Uh, there's, we're introduced to kind of the key themes in Revelation chapter 1. We, we have this vision of Jesus uh, the, uh, sitting on the throne and uh, he tells uh, John, that he's going to tell him, uh, this is in uh, Revelation 1.19, he tells John, I'm going to tell you things that have happened in the past, things that are happening now, and things that are going to happen in the future as well. And then he, start, he writes these seven letters to these churches that are all kind of around, uh, one of them's in Ephesus, uh, where John was the pastor for a long time, and then six churches that surround Ephesus in what's uh, now Asia Minor. Uh, what's now Turkey, it was called Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And he writes these letters to these just completely ordinary churches. Uh, the, the, they have good things going on in them. Uh, many of them love Jesus. Uh, many of them are being faithful. And then they've got stuff that they're struggling with. They're struggling with persecution. They're struggling with temptations to accommodate themselves to the culture. Um, they're struggling with poverty and smallness, um, especially the imperial uh, uh, in, in the, the emperor worship is growing. It's a, in, in the, at the end of the first century AD, emperor worship is the fastest growing religion in Asia Minor. And so they're struggling with that. And of course, the emperor religion is funded by the state. And so it's got massive buildings and uh, lots of priests and priestesses with beautiful uh, uh, garments that they wear and lots of money. And they're struggling with that. And then you immediately transition into chapters four and five where you get this vision of uh, the throne room of God, and 24 elders representing the entire people of God gathered around the throne, and the entire, all of God's people gathered there worshiping this lion who looks like a lamb who's been slain. And th those, I, I argued this last week, that those two things go together. These two visions of the ordinary just church with just ordinary people going about their lives, worshiping Jesus, and the vision of the church and all of its glory gathered around the throne are actually the same vision. It's, it's the same thing happening. And um, I was talking to, 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 to one of you this week, and we were talking about there's basically three different ways people have thought about the way God, and I use the word God generically, this isn't just a Christian thing, but people who thought about the gods. There's three different ways they've thought about how God relates to the earth. And one way is pantheism, where God and the earth are the same thing. Uh, this isn't so popular in the West. We're too materialistic for that sort of thing. But in the East, it's popular, and it was popular in the Roman Empire, uh, too. The Stoics were pantheist. The other way is to, sit, to assume they're just completely separate. God's up there. We're down here. And that's kind of, that's, that's a very Western thing to think. Like, if there is a God, he's up there. And I mean, every once in a while, he might do something, you know, if I pray, help me find my keys, he might help me find my keys. But basically, he's up there, he minds his own business, we're down here, we mind our own business. And the two things are separate. This is the, this is the default American view of God. Since the very beginning, the founding, our founding documents are deist, 
which is a fancy word for saying God's up there and we're down here and the two things don't meet. The vision of the Bible, though, is that heaven and earth, God and humans overlap and interlock. That there is, in the Venn diagram of earth and heaven, God and us, there is overlap. And the name of that overlap is Jesus. He is the God-man. He's the God-man. And wherever Jesus is, heaven and earth are overlapping. And so I tried to make a big deal at the end of the sermon last week about how the worships, Christian worship service, it's not a lecture with some music added onto it. It's actually heaven and earth intersecting and overlapping while we're here together around the throne of the Lamb. And that's, so, so what happens in Revelation 4 and 5 and what happens in Revelation 2 and 3 are happening at the same time, in the same space, with the same people. That's very, very key to understanding what's going on in Christian worship. Now, at the end of the reading last week, we saw this uh, these, uh, scroll with the seven seals, and nobody was worthy to open it except for the Lamb. And uh, I don't want to get into this too much, but there's pretty good evidence. I talked about this in Bible study last week. Sorry, if you don't come to Bible study, you miss out on some of this good stuff. There's pretty good evidence that um, what that is is a last will and testament. In, in, the, in the Roman Empire, wills and testaments were written on scrolls on one side with a summary on the other side of the scroll so that when the scroll is rolled up and put into the legal library that you can pull the scroll out and see what it's about. You know, this is the will of so-and-so with having to open up the whole scroll and see it because the scroll's sealed, right? Those last wills and testaments in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman Empire, had to be witnessed and sealed by seven witnesses. What looks like is happening here is that this is Je- Jesus is the only one who's allowed to open up this will because it's his will. And so what ends up happening is the slain lamb, he can open the will because the testators died. That's one of the rules of like opening up and enacting legally the contents of a will. He's also the executor though. He's the only one who's worthy to open it. And so what's happening is, is that, and I told you last week that the scroll, think of it like an architect's blueprints rolled up and the architect that gets to the work site and pulls out the blueprints and spreads them out. And now the architect has got his plan laid out for what's going to happen with the building of this building. So mix that up with the idea of it being a will and testament. That this is Jesus' inheritance, is this earth, the universe. It belongs to him. And now he's going to open up his will or the architectural plans for human history, and he's going to lay it all out. This is what's going to happen. And what happens in human history, we get this from the book of Revelation, from the whole Bible, is judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Um, I mean, a good example of this is uh, Noah and the flood, right? It's judgment on a world that's filled up with violence, where people are murdering each other left and right. But it's also salvation. That same water that purifies the earth is the water that floats the ark and keeps Noah and his family alive. And, and of course, uh, you don't need me to tell you this, the, the apex of this is Jesus' death, where God judges all the evil that's ever happened in the world and simultaneously rescues and vindicates Jesus and us, his people. And that's what's going on in the book of Revelation. If you want to, think of Revelation as kind of an unpacking of what the cross, what was happening at the cross in human history, in real time, in our lives. So one of the best things Revelation can do is it can help us to suffer in a way that provides a lens for us, ourselves, and the people around us on what God is ultimately doing. I mean, 
this is the only way to really suffer. If you have a, oh, I guess you do have a choice, don't you? I guess I should argue that this is really the way you should suffer, with meaning and purpose, knowing that God is using our suffering to produce good. I mean, that's, everybody in here suffers, right? Nobody in here is like, my life is beautiful 100%, not a single thing. Everybody in here suffers. The question is, are you suffering meaninglessly, which is random, the universe is out to get you, and even that's a little bit too spooky, just random? Or is God somehow at work is the suffering of Jesus and his resurrection somehow working itself out in your life? Now, one of the reasons, one of the stumbling blocks to this is that many of you don't think that your life is worth that. Like, so I suffer, but like, that's just because I'm, you know, I'm kind of a loser or because random stuff. And what Revelation is trying to get you to see is, no, you actually are so valuable to God that he is willing to imprint the image of his son on your suffering. That gives value, infinite value to your suffering. And I'm not talking about just big stuff. Just little stuff is covered over with the death death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that gives it infinite value. Okay, let's jump in here. There's seven seals. We're going to talk about each one of them, but we're going to do seals one through four fast. This is the four four horsemen, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, The first horseman is a rider on a white horse, and in verse two, this rider has authority to bring military conquest, to, to bring conquest. It's the, spirit, it's the spirit of Machiavelli. It's the spirit of power, winning, which is really kind of like the name of world history from, human, from a human standpoint. Who has the power? Who's in charge? And this, this, this rider on this uh, white horse brings this spirit, exposes this spirit, ramps up this spirit so it's really, really obvious that this is the name of the game from the world's perspective is power and who's in charge. Well, all, all these four horses are all related. Red horse is the second one. The red horse brings war because that's what power is. Political power only makes sense if it has the military power to back it up. If it doesn't, it doesn't have political power. That's the name of the game in, geopo- in geopolitics. And so you have conquering, you have the conquering military, uh, 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 conquering political Entities in verse two, but they bring war in verse four. I guess I should, I, let, let me just try and read these real quick as we talk about them. Uh, so uh, verse four is, uh, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. Okay, the third horse is a, is the, is a black horse and the rider on the black horse brings a couple things here which might not be obvious to us. So in verse five, the black horse, its rider had a pair of scales in his hand And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So um, denarius is a coin, it's a Roman coin and it was roughly equivalent to one day's wage work. So you work all day, you work for 10 hours and you would get paid for for, for a labor, uh, the pay would be roughly a denarius. And what's happened here is that your day's pay can buy you one quart of wheat and three quarts of barley, which I'm not, I'm not an economist and I'm not even good at basic math, but I read in a commentary this week that that's about 15 times the normal cost of wheat and barley in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century. So it's about, that's not, that's not, that's 15, 1,500% inflation. So what we have here is famine and hyperinflation, which always goes along with war. Is um, uh, people 
uh, I mean, so, so th there's a war happening in Ukraine right now, which you guys know about, and that's affected us. There's, this is one of the reasons why we have inflation, which is nowhere near 15 times what we normally pay for things. But this is, this is what happens. When, when, when the political entities in the world use military force to exercise their power, uh, inflation happens, famine happens, and then finally, fourth, the rider on the pale horse, verse 8, uh, brings about death. Um, this, this rider's name was Death. Uh, Hades, or hell, followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild, beast of, um, uh, wild beasts of the earth. So real quick question, why four horsemen? Um, actually, it's an image that comes from Zechariah 1 and 6 that I'm not going to get into right now. We can talk about it in Bible study if you'd like. But basically, the, four, the horsemen in Zechariah, the prophet, Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 1 and chapter 6, are God's ambassadors and scouts, God, God's messengers and scouts, who serve God and go out into the world taking his messages and get information and bring it back to God in Zechariah 1.6. And here, they're going out from God, from Jesus, and they're exposing and ramping up political power, death, famine, war. They're going out from God and doing this. But so that doesn't really answer our question, which is, why, when Jesus is unrolling the scroll, why aren't good things happening? Why are bad things happening? Why doesn't Jesus, like, have these seven seals and each one of the seals, like, nukes a bad guy or gets rid of, like, this, like, snaps his fingers and gets rid of, you know, uh, a famine over here? Why is that not happening? That's a good question. And I think that what's going on in Revelation, this isn't the first time, this isn't the last time that, that we'll see this in Revelation, is that God is determined to expose and to make really clear how deep and dark and depraved the evil forces that stand behind all the micro evil forces in this world really are, to expose them for being as nasty as they are. There's this famous text in Genesis 15, which I think kind of applies here. In Genesis 15, God meets with Abraham and gives him a covenant and tells Abraham, I'm going to move your people into this promised land someday. But he has this weird line. He says it's not actually going to happen for 400 years because he says that they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's really kind of a weird line. But I think what's going on there is, is that God is saying, I'm going to punish the Amorites, but I'm not going to do it now because their sin is mild compared to what it's going to be. I mean, eventually there's going to be human sacrifice. And when that happens, I will come back here and punish them. And what God is doing is saying, I'm merciful, I'm patient, I'm not going to blow people up unless it's actually necessary. God does not, so, so I, brought, I mentioned the flood earlier. If you go back and you look at Genesis 6, and I say this in the new members class and to, to the uh, seventh grade confirmance, like I it's not that God sends the flood because people are jaywalking a lot or because, you know, people tell white lies sometimes. In Genesis 6, it says because everybody's violent and the whole world is full of violence. And in that kind of scenario, the, the iniquity is complete and God is going to, God is going to, he's going to expose it at that point and he's going to eradicate. This is a very, very important part of judgment and salvation going together, okay, is that the sin of the world has to be met face, face on, full on, head on, so that it can be understood and eradicated. It's just the way evil works. 
I uh, was talking to a friend of mine last night, Angel and I were, and he was talking about this knee pain he's had, and it's just, his knee is just bugging him a ton, and he's gone to physical therapy and chiropractor, and he's got, you know, he's doing a bunch of stretches at home, and his knee just was not feeling any better. And so finally he went and had an MRI done, and, and yup, he's almost completely torn his ACL. And so he's going to have to have uh, a knee replacement, a knee surgery. He's already had, uh, this would be his third ACL surgery on the same knee. So knee replacement, he's too young for a knee replacement though, so he's like, what am I going to do? But at any rate, when he goes to the surgeon and says, my knee is real bad, here's the MRI scans, the surgeon is not going to say, okay, well, look, have you tried Tylenol? Why is that? Because that's not going to meet the problem. And, and when he thought that it was just kind of a knee ache, he thought, that's what I can do. I'll just take some Tylenol and it'll be okay. I'll just stretch it and it'll be okay. I'll just go to the chiropractor and it'll be okay. Let's go get some physical therapy and it'll be okay. And actually what he needs is to have a knife on his knee, cut it open, and replace what's in there. I mean, that's what's going on in, in, with the four horsemen, is that it's not like the world's kind of a good place and we just need Jesus to kind of gussy it up a little bit. Actually, radical surgery needs to happen. And for that to happen, the symptoms have to be, not, not the symptoms, the cause has to be exposed. He, Jesus is not gonna deal with the symptoms. He's gonna deal with the root cause, which is rampant, rampant evil. Okay, that brings us to seal number five, and this is related here. Seal number five uh, in chapter six and verse nine is uh, John sees the saints under the altar who've been slain for the word of God and for the witness they borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are people who've died for being faithful to Jesus. Life's going on here on earth normal, and they are in, this is not the word that John uses here, but they're in heaven. They're underneath the altar of God in the throne room of God, and they're crying out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us? So let me point out three things to you here. One is, these are saints who've been killed for their faith, during this age, we're not talking about the future. We're talking about right now. There are saints who've been killed who are underneath the throne of God. Second, they're not living in absolute bliss. I know that we talk about, you know, dying and going to heaven and everything being fine then. There's a part of that that's really true. But this is kind of the only description we have in the entire Bible of humans who've died and gone to heaven. And they aren't, like, living this life of perfect bliss. In fact... They're there in God's presence, but they're deeply frustrated still. Why? Because righteousness and justice have not been enacted yet. The bad people who killed them still have power, are still in charge, are still waging war and causing famines and, and, and killing people. And as long as that's happening, happy, happy though they are in the presence of Jesus, there's a part of them that's deeply frustrated and is crying out for vengeance, wants God to act. And so what's the response? A white robe, which is a symbol of victory, that you are in the right. Jesus said, saying to them, you will be vindicated. You are in the right and told to wait for a time. But a promise that the time will come. That the time will come uh, once all the rest of the martyrs who have to be martyred have been martyred. Then I will act, Jesus says. Third thing I want to point out to you, and I've, I've already mentioned this, is they want God to make things right now. How long before you fix this? What's going on here? This is, for, for, uh, for, for those of you who are Christians or those of you who are toying with Christianity, this is kind of a universal issue that we have with God is like, 
fix things now. Why can't you fix things now? My life is screwed up now, or this part of my life is screwed up now. God, why can't you fix things now? Why aren't you acting? This is what the saints who are actually in heaven are saying to God. Why can't you fix things now? And his, his response really is, just wait. This is going to take some time. Now, I, I was reading, th- this helped me this week. I, I was reading something in uh, uh, this little analogy. I'll pass this on to you. Because this helps me think uh, in ways that I hadn't before about why God waits. Why when we want him to act now and fix things now. Why sometimes he's waiting. And the little analogy goes like this. There's three ways that you can end a game of Monopoly. There's three ways. One is a stalemate. Like you play long enough and things aren't like, you know, nobody's getting really close to like cleaning up the board and you get bored and you just kind of quit. Nobody would call that a victory though, right? The second way is to kick the board over, which is the way many Monopoly games end, is somebody gets angry and just kicks the board over. That's the second way to end a game of Monopoly. The third way is to kind of hunker down for the long haul and do all of the slow, patient, sometimes boring work of weaseling all of your playing partners out of their money and their property until after sometimes days the game is over. Now, when the saints under the altar, when we say to God, God, why don't you act now? One of the things we want him to do is to kick the board over. Is just end it now. Like fix everything now. But see, Jesus doesn't want to kick the board over because that's not really winning. What Jesus wants to do is to pick apart, from our perspective, slowly but surely, all of the deep and dark and depraved evil that's behind all of the deep and dark and depraved evil, large and small, that you can see in the world around you. Jesus is slowly winning victories over those things. So at the end of the game, there's no stalemate. There's no board with the pieces lying on the floor. And Jesus didn't really win, but he was just stronger than everybody else. And so he was like, I'm done messing with this. It actually is a classic victory where he has dismantled and shown himself to be sovereign over all these other players in the game. Political forces, economic forces, cultural forces. Jesus is going to beat them at Monopoly. That's going to take time. That's going to take time. I know Monopoly games are boring. Sometimes excruciatingly boring. Some of us would describe playing Monopoly as a tribulation. And yet Jesus will win the game of Monopoly at the end. Brings us to seal six, which is kind of a big one, okay? And I'm, I'm going to do this fast. We're not going to talk about this in detail because it's very long. In the sixth seal, chapter six, verse 12, there's two parts. There's a small part that has a, a judgment. And then there's a big part that has salvation. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. Behold, there's a great earthquake The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay, I know some of you out there are thinking now, oh, that's the end of the world. That's a description of like the end of the cosmos. Go back and listen to the first sermon. I don't have time to get into this again. So I repeat myself way too much in here already. This is apocalyptic language. It's not describing the end of the universe. It's the way in the Jewish genre, apocalyptic, cosmic significance is added to everyday ordinary events. All right, so this is not describing the end of the physical universe. Else, these mountains which are being taken out of place in uh, verse 15, why are they showing up again in verses 15 and 16 where everybody on earth is saying, hide us in the mountains if the mountains are being taken out of place? What's happening here is bit. Events are happening in world history that are actually God at work, 
people might not think that it's God at work, but it actually is God at work. And other people, the, the, people, the, who, uh, the people who sit under God's judgment are seeing these events and saying, we gotta get away from God. We gotta hide ourselves from God and from the wrath of the Lamb because we don't want any part of it. What's going on here? Well, this is actually, this is actually I mean, this is the way humans work, right? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sin against God. What's their first impulse? Hide from God. When I fell away from faith, whenever that was, 15, 20 years, 15 years ago, that was my number one impulse. I wanna do what I want with my life, hide from God. I don't want anything to do with God. This is what we do. Did I think God wasn't there? I actually don't, I don't know what I thought. Like I, I was a real genuine fool, so I, like I wasn't thinking rationally. But whether he was there or not, I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want anything to do. And that's what these people are. Here's the God of the universe who desires to save them. And when his salvation, when his judgment slash salvation is enacted, their first impulse is, I don't want anything to do with God. Get him away from me. This is the way, this is, like I said, this is the way we work. After 9-11, so, so some people, you know, some people, when bad stuff happens, it drives them to God. So after 9-11, the church is notoriously, like attendance shot up for a month right after 9-11, and then like really quickly eased back down to uh, what, their, what their attendance had been before that. But, but many people are like, I mean, this is so, I talk to a lot of atheists, um, uh, mainly at school, and a lot of times what they'll say to me is, I can't believe in a God who would let bad things happen. I can't believe in a God who would let bad things happen. And um, it's kind of a little bit what's going on with these people here. Like bad things are happening and I just don't want to believe in a God under whose authority famine and death would occur. And, and I, I, I think that you two certainly understand that. Like we want to have a vision of God where he's like super nice and gentle and pats everybody on the head except when we want him to do something then he kicks the monopoly board over. It's kind of a, you know, kind of a weird uh, a la carte view of God where we want him to be super sweet and nice when we need him to. But when people we don't like are crossing us, we need him to come in and you know, kick the game board over. But actually, if God is who God says he is, then me not believing in him doesn't actually get, a, get away from that. So this is their problem is they wanna hide from God when actually what they should be doing is saying, God save me. And, and at no point are they expected to like God. That's not the issue. Like there's a lot of people in the Bible, saints, who from time to time don't like God because God is flexing his muscles. Job is like this. Job spends almost the whole book of Job not liking God. The issue isn't do you need to like God. The issue is, is he there? Is he there? No matter, if he's God and he's there, then I have to submit to him. And, and the good news is he wants to save me too. He's on my side. He's not, he's not against me as scary as he is. I've given you guys this illustration before, but like, you know, saying I can't believe in a God who would let bad things happen is like standing on the beach, shaking your fist at the tsunami as it comes in. Saying I refuse to believe in that tsunami because it's gonna do a bunch of damage. I get it, you don't like the tsunami, that's appropriate. But standing there on the beach shaking your fist at him is a good way to get killed by a tsunami. And what you should do is respect the ocean. Get up to higher ground. And when God says I punish sin, the, the, the wrong move would be like I don't like gods like that. Okay, that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody likes a God who punishes sin. It's scary for all of us because we're all sinners. But if he's God, then he's there to save us too. And to say, I don't, it's not my call whether he's nice 
are friendly or mean or, you know, sassy. That's who he is is who he is, and I must obey him. That's the bad part. The good part is the 144,000 in chapter 7. And we're not even going to look at this hardly at all. I'll say this, though. 144,000 not Jews. Now, somebody say, well, it says 144,000 Jews. But remember in the book of Revelation, John frequently uses Israel or the Jews as kind of a synonym for all of God's people, all those who have submitted to the king of the Jews are Jews. 144,000 is a symbolic number, right? Now, remember last week we looked at the 24 elders around the throne, and I told you this 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, and kind of together that number 24 symbols God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. 144,000 is not just the tribes and the apostles. It's all of God's people. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's a very, very symbolic number. It just means a ton of God's people. And besides that, if you look down at verse, um, uh, verse 9, he lists you know, all these uh, tribes of Judah, some of which aren't correct. There actually isn't a tribe of Joseph um, in here. Uh, in there, and so, so the, the names aren't totally correct. But in verse nine, after this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. So most scholars believe that this is the 144,000. They're given this symbolic number, which means all of God's people everywhere. But then when you look at them, you can't actually number them. And it's not just ethnic Jews. It's people from, it's Jewish people, but it's people from every tribe and nation and tongue as well. It's all of God's people who have been, verse 13 and 14, these people have been faithful to Jesus in the face of tribulation. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So the tribulation is, by, by the way, we're, we are gonna talk about this in adult, adult Bible study. It is not a three and a half year or a seven year period at the end of time. It's not what's going on here. It's not mentioned at all. We'll talk about in the adult Bible study. The tribulation is what everybody, every Christian between Jesus' first coming and second coming have gone through. And to go through that tribulation and to be faithful to Jesus means you will be given a white robe, which has been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. They've been faithful to Jesus in the, faith, in the face of tribulation. God eternally cares for them. Verses 16 and 17, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So the lamb ends up being the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a reference to Psalm 23, uh, the shepherd guiding them to springs of living water. But Psalm 23, it turns out that the shepherd is actually the lamb. The shepherd is actually Jesus. But also, we'll eternally worship this lamb who's uh, paid for our sins with his blood. Verse 10, salvation belongs, this is what these... Uh, uh, the 144,000, this is what the innumerable host says. Crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This will be a recurring theme. These hymns will pop up over and over in the book of Revelation, and I'll explain more why next week when we get to the seven trumpets. Finally, the seventh seal, uh, chapter eight, and we're almost done here. Verse two, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So a part of the seventh seal is giving these seven angels seven trumpets. And when we get together next week, 
they're going to start blowing those trumpets. So the seven trumpets will be our framework next week. But the seven trumpets actually are a subset of the seventh seal. And we'll talk more about that next week, um, uh, about the trumpets and what they mean. But let me just mention real quick, verses three through five, another angel came and stood at the altar, altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now in chapter five, verse eight from last week, we were told that the incense in God's holy temple is the prayers of the saints. And now there's this angel with a censer, and he's gonna take this incense mixed up with the prayers of the saints, and here's what he's going to do. Um, uh, the smoke of the incense, verse four, with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Somehow, the prayers of God's people, your prayers are tied up with God's plan to do what he's going to do. He uses, within his sovereign will, he uses your prayers to accomplish his will. The prayers of the saints are put into this censer, and when the incense is flung, including your prayers to the earth, the next stage in what God is about to do happens, which is lightning, thunders, earthquakes, things like that. Which, okay, so what does that mean? How do our prayers combine with this incense create? Well, we have to ask ourselves the question really fast. What's the deal with the lightning and the thunders and the earthquake? Do you remember, does anybody in here remember, Now you're not allowed to say out loud in church because Lutherans don't talk out loud in church, except for the pastor. That's the rule. It's somewhere in our constitution. Where, where did you hear that? Where have you heard that in the biblical story before? Where's the first place where like there's this event where there's thunders and lightnings and earthquakes? Okay, I'll remind you, some of you are thinking of it in your head right now. On Mount Sinai, when God comes down on Mount Sinai to meet with his people, what happens is, is smoke and fire and earthquakes, and everybody's scared of it. Now, what's going on here? Why are there smoke and fire and earthquakes happening here? Which, by the way, the smoke and the fire and the earthquakes and the lightning, that is happening here. It will also happen at the very end of the trumpets. It will also happen at the very end of the bowls. What's the point? The point is, What's happening in Revelation with the trumpets and the bowls and the seals is God's plan to meet and live with his people. That's what Sinai was about. Heaven and earth interlocking and overlapping at Mount Sinai. God and Moses meeting. Moses ended up being a weird sort of intermediary. A better one than Moses, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews, is Jesus, who is both God and man. But the whole story of Revelation is about God's desire to live with his people. And this is why judgment is important. Is it because God's mean and he wants to blow up people who disagree with him? No, it's because if he's gonna live with us, things have to be a way, that's a, a way that's appropriate to his holiness. And he wants to clean us up. He wants to do the surgery on us. He wants to cut the knee open and replace the knee instead of just giving you some aspirin and say to go home and stretch. Jesus is the way he does this. God does surgery on the human race with the scalpel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's scary, and it's painful for him and for us too, but it's the way he's creating a new people, a new, clean, fresh, holy people with whom he can meet and worship. That's the goal of Revelation. We'll talk about that as we go in the upcoming sermons. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. And even though it's kind of a blur and we didn't really dig in very much here, Father, would you use Revelation 6, 7, and 8, 1 through 5 to transform us to think about you, Father, as 
as the one who acts, uh, is the one who is vengeful, but for the purpose of purification, for the purpose of surgery. Would you uh, give us comfort and hope, Father, that as we go through this tribulation, that we are actually being drawn closer to you, that our robes have been cleaned white in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, from ages past, you've been our God and you've been faithful to us when we've been unfaithful to you. And so we come before you this morning asking you to answer these requests of ours, not because of our goodness or any merit of ours, or because somehow we've earned your attention and your favor with our faithfulness but because in spite of the fact that we wander so often from you, you have remained faithful to us, faithful to your covenant, faithful to the promises that you made us in our baptisms into your son, Jesus Christ. And so in, in spite of the fact that we're sinful and turned in on ourselves and um, don't, don't even really know what to pray for, we come with boldness to you knowing that you are a good father who wants to hear our prayer request because you love us. And I pray that you would uh, be with us, your people, Lord, who 
live as your people in our, in our world and are called not to be a fortress, uh, not to be a, a Lutheran ghetto, but to live as your ambassadors and as your colony here in Glen Carbon. Give us love in our heart for our village and for uh, the villages and the cities and the towns that we live in. Give us hearts that long to serve in word and in action the people who are around us in your name. And we know that that's going to create friction from time to time. Hopefully, God forbid, because we create friction or because we're rude, but because the universal claims of your son Jesus, our Lord, naturally stand in opposition to alternate competing claims. And as we experience the tribulation that comes from this experience, Lord, help us to be reminded of your love for us and how this is not, this does not mean that something's going wrong, but it means that you are at work and that the power of your son's cross is active and is transforming our lives and our communities and our neighborhoods and our village. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I, I thank you for the ministries that you've called us to here at St. James and so many individual, like all of us, God, have you know, at our work or at our home or neighborhood or hobbies, the individual missions that you've given to us to love in your name. But I also want to thank and praise you for kind of the, the bigger, the, the group things that you're doing here at St. James. And this morning, I want to thank you for our musicians and for calling them and gifting them to help lead us in the worship of you and be with them as they work to serve us and to serve you. And uh, may they be fantastic aids in pointing our eyes to your son, Jesus Christ. And I also pray that you'd be with our missionary, or, or who we support as a missionary, uh, Mike Ramsey at Revival School, and that you would bless his ministry as he ministers to Congolese refugees there in St. Louis, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them, and as they're thinking about planting a church, that you would lead and guide and open those doors as well. Lord, in your mercy. Be with all who are uh, sick, and are suffering with uh, physical pain, uh, mental stress, mental pain, mental anguish, people who are uh, grappling with mistakes they've made in relationships which have caused damage and the guilt that comes from that and the shame that comes from that, people who are lonely, people who are worried about money, people who are worried about things going on in the culture, people who are worried about things going on in the environment, Lord, would you, would you meet with us and would you give us the hope and comfort that comes from knowing that since your son Jesus has been raised from the dead, that the promise and guarantee that all things will be made new, that we can live at peace with that while working as hard as we can for, for health and, and wholeness and, and relational healing, but knowing that you have good things planned for us and in store for us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, again, we can only come to you because of your son, Jesus Christ, who functions as the bridge from us to you. And even more than that, has actually pulled us across to your side, has united us to himself and, and made us his sisters and brothers and has brought us into your throne room so that we can have this prayer, this conversation with you. Let us hear your voice as we know you hear our voice. Father, whatever we're asking for right now, May it lead to a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. 
It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord, in the highest. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. See on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is Just is 
stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen.
Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Build community. Look around, find somebody. Don't leave this room without investing in somebody else. Go in peace.